In this episode of the Transforming Society podcast, I'm speaking to Terry Givens, CEO and founder of the Centre for Higher Education Leadership. A renowned political scientist, she is the author of Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides, which is published by Policy Press. We're recording this episode in the midst of a coronavirus lockdown, a week after the Capitol riot, and a week before Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are inaugurated as President and Vice President of the US. So there's a lot to talk about. Hi, Terry. Good morning. It's morning here in the US. Afternoon here. Good afternoon. (laughs) Thank you very much for speaking to me today. Um, So we're going to start by talking about the book which I very, very much enjoyed reading. Thank you. Um, So we often think that empathy and being an ally is enough, but the reality is that we need practical action to combat structural racism. So what is radical empathy and how can it transform society for the better? Well, I chose the term radical empathy because I realized, you know, I'm a pretty empathic person. I, I could find it relatively easy to put myself in other people's shoes and understand their perspective. But, you know, I know a lot of people like that. And yet, if you look around our society, um, and this is not just true of the U.S., but even in Europe, um, our, our structural racism hasn't changed. And so it's like we've made some progress, especially since the 1960s. But there's still these, you know, if you look at, I put a lot of numbers and data in the book because it's important to understand that structural racism is persistent and it's not going to change unless every single individual <laughs> says we need to change. Um, and so it, I, I tell my story because I think it's important for people to understand my path, but it's, it was also important for me to understand my own bias. And by understanding my bias, I could then say, see how I was actually helping to perpetuate structural racism myself and you know, my family and so on. And so I realized that I needed to create change. And, you know, this, the steps are, you know, basically, you know, to, to be vulnerable, to um, try to understand the, your own story. And so I really encourage people to take some time to understand your own life story and, and where you live, and then to really try to understand others and not just understand them, but take action that can create change. And that means practicing empathy and pra- you know actually calling for change, understanding what kind of change needs to happen. And that's what the book is all about, really, um, because we aren't going to to really get to where we need to be as a society if we don't change. So I like to think of myself as quite an empathetic person, but what is the difference between being empathetic and practicing empathy? I feel like I probably, I'm someone who probably hasn't made that jump to practicing empathy. Basically what that requires, you know, it's easy to have empathy for our friends and, you know, you might be reading a newspaper article and, and see that, you know, oh, this was a, a bad or a good thing that happened and, you know, having empathy for somebody. But practicing empathy means getting out of your comfort zone. And that means that, you know, I, I know a lot of people, especially at this time, ha- ask me about, you know, well, how can I have empathy for, you know, somebody who's opposite of me? And and, or somebody, you know, it's really looking around your community. And, you know, one of the things I do with my neighbors is I, you know, they say, you know, they'll have their Black Lives Matter sign in their front room. And they say, what can I do? I say, well, look around the neighborhood. 
you know, you're, this is a very comfortable place to be a, you know, a white person, basically, because my neighborhood is very white. There's not very many minorities. And I say, you know, think about other communities that may be more diverse. You know, what would it be like to live in that kind of environment? So, you know, it's really stepping out of your personal experience and trying to put yourself in a different space. Um, because, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, you know, that's my friend, Terry. I have empathy for her. She lives down the street. But what about the person who lives on the other side of the freeway who is, you know, struggling and uh, particularly in this time of COVID? And it's easy to have empathy for that person. Oh, they're poor and they don't have all the resources. But practicing empathy means really trying to understand what their lived experience is like. It's not just saying, I feel for that person. It's really trying to understand on a day-to-day basis, what are the challenges that person is facing and why? And, you know, it's that why that we don't ask. You know, why why are all those Black people living over in that neighborhood and this neighborhood is so white? You know, it has to do with not just, you know, the segregation of the past, but the the hurdles and, and things we keep that keep people from living in our neighborhood today. So you have to understand that in order to have empathy for these people because they're not getting the same jobs that we are. You know, we are the privileged ones over here. Why aren't they aren't getting the same education? You know, here in the U.S., our education system is so unequal. You know, the schools over on that part of town are, are way worse. Do you understand that? Do you understand that that's their lived experience? So that's a, a big part of it. So I suppose the only the way you get yourself into that space and be able to understand someone else's experience, that's the storytelling bit, isn't it? The telling stories and listening to stories. Yes, it is. And you spoke to that a little bit just now, but could you say a little bit more about why telling stories is so important to help us practice radical empathy? Basically, we, we have a tendency when we're dealing with diversity and equity and inclusion types of issues. Uh, okay here's uh structural racism and here's how you define that and here's unconscious bias and here's how you define that and so the the problem is you can give people definitions but they don't that just you know that then it just goes right through one in ear out the other the by telling story stories you know are it's easy mark it's it's easier to touch people by telling stories because that is really diving in and that's a way for them to get in connection with your lived experience. And But it's also important for us to understand our own stories. And so storytelling is, you know, goes, you know, from ancient times, that's the way we communicate, that's the way we preserve our stories um, in our history. And, but it's also a way to connect. So a lot of this is about developing connection. And by telling my story and being vulnerable, um, it, it really can help somebody to see how we connect. What are some of the commonalities between us? Um, but also just getting some insight into who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. That's why I talk a lot about vulnerability, because it's not just telling a story. It's being willing to open up and tell you know your real story. So going on to vulnerability, Brené Brown is a leading expert on vulnerability, and she says vulnerability is basically uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Um, 
in the book, you explain how this is kind of like the first step towards radical empathy, and it's probably the most challenging for some people. Um, and you also say in the book that you found the process of telling your story challenging and that you had to make yourself vulnerable to do it. So can you say a bit more about what the role of vulnerability is in all this in radical empathy? Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the you know, I, I, and I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's unique about my book is that I try to connect vulnerability to this idea of um, you know, not just having empathy, but taking action. And so vulnerability is critical because it allows us to understand ourselves better and for others to understand us because it really forces you to, you know, look deeper than you may have before. And I'm not saying, you know, everybody, you know, has to do, is able to do this. This is really difficult. Um, but it's, it's practice, right? And so it's just like you have to practice empathy, you have to practice being vulnerable. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not something that comes naturally, because as Renee Brown would say, you know, we often feel shame about some of the things that have occurred in our lives. But the reality is that by being able to get in touch with that uh, inner story, that those things that that may have you know, caused pain, um, you know, then it's it's a way to, again, connect to yourself, connect to your own story, understand your own story and to give you have empathy for yourself. Yeah. And so point. that, yeah, you know, one of the big things that I found was that I had to develop empathy for myself. I had to give myself a break and say, you know, these things happened in your life and, you know, they you may be angry about them. They may have caused you pain, but you have to acknowledge and understand them mm. so that you can move on, you mm. know, and, and, you know, in psychology, they talk a lot about, you know, how you have to kind of break through and understand your past in order to, you know, psychologically move on. And I also talk about the fact that, you know, you have to love, I, you know, talk in the chapter on love and marriage, I talk about, you know, I had to love myself before I could love my husband you know? yeah. <laughs> because I have to feel worthy. And so, by being vulnerable, you can take that step inside and understand your own story and, um, you know, be able to, you know, basically have empathy for yourself, learn to love yourself. And then that makes it so much easier to connect with others and, and love others because that vulnerability helps somebody else be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and I've really seen that. I've been doing some workshops related to this. And boy, that has really been one of the most powerful components of the workshops is by showing my own vulnerability and people feel that they can be vulnerable and share some of their, you know, deeper stories and things that have been painful to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to early in the book, you talk about your childhood and I wanted to ask you about, um, assimilation. So when you speak about how your parents brought you up and brought your siblings up, I really realized how people of color can sometimes be encouraged to change to fit the system and assimilate into it. Can you talk about the short and long term impact of this? Sure. So this idea of assimilation is something that has been, you know, throughout our history, we've, you know, as Africans who were brought to this country and you know, I mean, slavery was a horrific institution, but after it ended, um, there was a real effort by you know, the formerly enslaved people to try to 
you know, assimilate into society. You know, many weren't allowed to, but the idea was that we had to prove ourselves, you know, that we had to show that we were worthy. Um, and, you know, we spent, you know, a whole century after the end of the Civil War trying to get equal rights, you know, I could go into a long historical examination of that, but the, the short um, version is that there was this pressure to conform, to, you know, really be able to fit into white society. White society didn't have to accommodate to us. Um, and in that, you know, I, but in telling my family story, I, I show, how, you know, I, I, it was really isolating the way that my parents raised us. But I know that they were trying to help us be assimilated so that we could be successful in life. Mm. And, you know, I hear that all the time. It's like, well, you know, you shouldn't act this way or you shouldn't talk this way because, you know, you have to be respectable. It's really, it's all about this respectability politics or, well, it's not just politics, it's just being respectable to, you know, quote unquote society. And what that does is it, you know, suppresses a lot of our own culture. It suppresses a lot of the ways we want to express ourselves. And, um, you know, it, it, to the extreme, I mean, this isn't the complete extreme, but to a certain extent, it was extreme. You know, it, we isolate ourselves from our own family and our, our yeah. culture and our heritage. You know, it's really interesting when I think, and this is not just for African-Americans. You know, you look at the immigration history in the U.S. and so many people who came here from Europe, you know, they stopped speaking their language. Um, you know, they really tried to assimilate. And so... Um, you know, I know have so many friends who, who are, whose parents came here as immigrants and they didn't learn the language of their parents and they really regret that because yeah. they would love to have learned those languages. So it's not just um, African-Americans who feel this way. And so um, I, I really feel that assimilate, I, I completely understand why my parents did what they did. And, you know, for the times it was the right Thing that they felt they had to do, but uh, you know, it left me feeling so disengaged, and you know, feeling a, a real difficulty in um, connecting with a lot of African American culture. And so, you know, what I feel good about is that me and my siblings, you know, we reach out to our cousins, you know, we've developed relationships. Um, but you know, there, there's so much time that I feel like you know, we lost. So the short term impact was just I, I was very angry about the whole thing <laughs> for a mm -hmm. long time. Um, and but the long term impact is, you know, a lot of the divides that we see. And I know we're going to talk about that more, yeah. but um, not just within, you know, between people of different races, but within those communities. Um, so I think the long term impact is also a loss of you know, some of that culture that, uh, that was used to be there. Okay. So speaking of divides, um, last week saw the awful capital riot, uh, the subtitle to the book is finding a path to bridging racial divides. And I think the riot was quite a stark reminder of the divides in the U S what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's definitely, a very divided time in our country. And as a political scientist, you know, I'm very aware of um, the political divides that have impacted our country for almost the entire time we've been a country. And the, you know, the, what really came out last week was, and you, I have to say we're still processing, mm -hmm. but to me, it, it was an indication of 
just the willing, you know, violence is not new in this country. There's always been a willingness uh, for these white mobs to attack, um, you know, often African-Americans, institutions, whatever, to preserve basically white supremacy. Yeah. And, you know, these aren't people, you know, it's really interesting, you know, if you see um, who these people were, they're not, you know, people coming from, so there was some of this, but, you know, the people who are getting, you know, the CEOs of companies, you know, real estate agents, um, you know, other law enforcement and, and military veterans. And, you know, these aren't people who are really suffering in, in you know, when we think of being in poverty or, you know, struggling with COVID and so on. And so it really is a question of, you know, what some of my colleagues would say is precarity. It's like they have this fear of losing something. Yeah. And that's why the, you know, anti-immigration sentiment, you know, I'm, I'm an immigration scholar, so I've been studying this phenomenon for about 20 years, the anti-immigration mm-hmm. sentiment. And it's very male dominated. Um, but in terms of the, the divides, though, it, it really shows that there's one part of America that, you know, is really seeking the truth and, and, and another part of America that wants to believe what somebody is telling them in order to build up their prior beliefs. Yeah. And so it's, you know, and people ask me, oh, can we bridge that divide? Well, there's a hardcore group of people who just aren't going to be open to that message. I mean, as you hear over and over in the media, this is like a cult. Yeah. Um, And that means it's going to take deprogramming, (laughs) but it's also going to take truth. And, you know, I'll refer to the final chapter of the book, which talks about truth and reconciliation. Yes. And I have been posting that over and over and over again in social media. We need truth first. It's like a lot of politicians are saying, oh, we just need to move on and heal. You can't heal without truth. And this is the story from Germany, from uh, South Africa, and I talk about those two stories, and believe me, they haven't done everything right. But if we don't start with the truth, it's really going to be hard to bridge those divides. And so that's why I, I really think that um, for those who believe in radical empathy and, and want to create that change, we have to start with the truth. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then we can move on to reconciliation. And, you know, for those who are willing to, to do that, wonderful. Um, but it's going to take all of, we all have to take responsibility for this. And for, and it's interesting on, on my Facebook page, I have a, 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 a one of those um, uh, frames for my picture that says, you know, basically what happens next is up to us. And so. So how do uh, you, how do you take responsibility? I know through through the book, um, you do give a lot of practical advice, which I think is really useful. But in this context of finding truth and exploring the truth, what can individuals do? We can stop being accepting of the, you know, the lack of truth, (laughs) you know, I mean, basically, we have to call people on it. You know, when they talk, start talking about the conspiracy theories and, you know, I believe me, I do this all the time. And so I mean, I feel like my and my friends will tell me my Facebook page is like a, you know, a, a primer for people who want to understand okay. politics. So I am, you know, my the action I take is, you know, because I'm a professor and, and I'm a teacher is I, I provide that context for people because, you know, I know I'm out there doing all the reading and and 
uh, you know, trying to follow what's happening. And not everybody has the, the time to do that. Um, and they also get caught up in their own, um, you know, echo chambers, as we call it. But the, the interesting thing is, you know, the, there's, you know, a lot of different echo chambers. And so I try to cross those and say, look, here is, you know, a reliable, um, you know, source that you can read, that you can understand what is happening and making sure people, because there's plenty of stuff I've seen, you know, that was not true from, uh, you know, the left, not just the right. And so, yeah. you know, I try to say, no, this is what really happened. You know, in, in times like these, when the you know temperatures are so high and, you know, we're just, you know, all kind of tense and anxious, it's really easy to jump to conclusions um, to say, well, you know, and start getting into conspiracy theories. And believe me, African-Americans, you know, I, I understand why African-Americans, you know, uh, uh, want to follow conspiracy theories because yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's not a, con it, it's a real conspiracy against us. Yeah. Um, but basically, you know, I always try to dig in and find the truth to tell, you know, to share that with people and then call people on it on what, regardless of which side they're coming from when they're spreading uh, things that aren't true. And, you know, I always make sure I double check and double check to make sure, you know, what I'm saying is correct. Um, but that's just a, 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 you know, that's just a starting point. You know, the next is to make sure we're supporting politics. You know, people say, oh, politics, you know, they roll their eyes. Well, get out there and vote, number one. Number two, mm -hmm. support candidates who really are out there telling the truth, regardless of which side they're on, you know, yeah. and I tell people, yeah, I'm, I tend to vote more democratic, but I also believe in a loyal opposition. And I, I believe that we need to have a strong two party system. Um, but it has to be based on truth. And I know, you know, yes, you can bend the truth you can, and politicians do that all the time. But there's a there's a, it's a huge leap from bending the truth to to just saying, you know, we're not sure the president lost the election you know yeah. that's just a completely that's a lie yeah that's not a bend <laughs> no and so um you know there this is an extreme situation mm -hmm. um but it's just really frustrating to see that you know a lot of these politicians are still supporting basically a lie <laughs> and that's not something you can support yeah so. and again i suppose it's in those day-to-day -day conversations and stories we hear where we start to make change isn't it yeah, absolutely. You know, because you, you we tend to get frozen because we, oh, I can't create, I can't change this the society. I can. It's in the day to day interactions where that change is happening. You know, I was just talking to my sister who has a friend. Her father, you know, had gotten caught up in Fox News, but she and she talked to him every day, and in the end, he finally got it. <laughs> You know, yeah. if you can provide change. some balance, then that's yeah. great. I've just listened to that um, rabbit hole podcast, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was fascinating and definitely shows the importance of having balance. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose, again, it's in those day to day conversations and calling people out. That's the moment where we need to make ourselves vulnerable and go outside mm -hmm. of our, our comfort zones to be able to do it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's a really great example because um, it, it is, you know, you know, sometimes I just don't, I don't want to get, oh, I hear this all the time. You know, I keep, I've done this so many times and it doesn't change anything. It's like, well, guess what? <laughs> we don't have the the luxury of saying, we, you know, we, we're going to stop because 
we have to, you know, I, I, this, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day. She, well, you know, I said, look, we have to create the change. She's like, well, I tried and tried and tried. It's like, we'll try again. Cause guess what? In my life, I don't have the option not to try because I'm out there every day, you know, in my black body and people respond a particular way to me. And I have to continue to, um, you know, show these people that any preconceived notions they have about me are wrong. And I do that every single day. So don't tell me you're tired of trying to convince your friends that or family that they should change the way they think. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Um, moving on to another of the big issues of our time, um, that's COVID. So in chapter four of the book, you focus on racism and health disparities. So what's been the impact of COVID-19 and is there a role for radical empathy to play here? I was thinking when I thought of this question, right, how can radical empathy improve health outcomes during the pandemic? Yeah, well, that's an easy one here is, you know, if you have empathy for other people, then you're going to be more likely to wear that mask because you care about what happens to that other person. You know? It's really basic, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. is. You know, that's what Anthony Fauci always says. You know, I, I can't tell you why you should care for other people and wear a mask. You know, you have to understand that. Yeah. Um, and so that's the very basic point. But I mean, it, it's really unfortunate because COVID has really negatively impacted um, the African-American community and, you know, the black community in the UK and, um, you know, immigrant communities across Europe more, you know, because we're the frontline workers, we're the essential workers. Um, you know, we can't, we can't afford to not work. Um, and so, you know, for black and brown people here in the U.S., the it's not only that the, they're getting it, they're more likely to get it, but they're more likely to die from it because of health disparities. Um, and so we really, really, really need our healthcare providers to have empathy and to understand that they have biases that are impacting the way they are treating people. And you may have heard of the story of the physician, the African-American woman who was complaining to the hospital staff yeah. that she was not getting the you know the the services and you know the pain medicine she needed to be, and she felt they were they're being racist towards her and she ended up dying of covid yeah. and so that's been a really high profile case but i mean i have documented it in the book i mean it's just you know consistent that um we see this situation where uh, African Americans, in particular, are you know treated as if you know they they can handle pain better. You know, I mean, the infant mortality rates are just heartbreaking, um, and so we we really need to understand. And I, I've worked with a friend who's a physician on this. You know, doctors need to take a s step back when they walk into the room and see an African American. They or, or at any you know somebody who's not white if they are and it doesn't matter if they're white or not frankly they they need to drop their preconceived notions about that person and treat them like they would any other uh, patient and yeah. you know one way we've just thought to do that is to create a checklist you know that every single patient you see you go through the same checklist <laughs> so that you ask the right questions that you don't ignore somebody's pain um, you know that you do give the same you know, treatment to a, a pregnant black woman as you would a pregnant white woman. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's a huge problem. And again, I found you talking about your mother and father in the book and things that they went through was 
really helpful in understanding the points about health too yeah and myself too i mean i experienced yeah. that when i yeah. was you know trying to get a diagnosis for endometriosis it's like oh, you know, yes. these doctors yeah. believe that black women don't get endometriosis it's like yes we do you know my yes. sister had have, you know, she lost her her uterus because of you know endometriosis, and um, so anyway, it's just we've all experienced it in one way or another. Yeah. Another theme in the book um, you speak a lot about is the role of leadership, and you say that anti-racism needs to be a top-down and a bottom-up endeavor. And you use the concept of inclusive leadership to explain how this works. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Right. And you know, inclusive leadership is critical at this point in time because, you know, one of the things I noticed is that we've made some progress. You know, there, it's not like we haven't increased at all the number of African-Americans and others and, and even women in leadership positions. But it's still there's still that glass ceiling, although, thank goodness, Kamala Harris has broken it. Yes, I'm going to ask House. you about her in yes, a minute. I, yeah. Um, but uh, the, the bigger issue is that, you know, I, like, I live in Silicon Valley and, you know, we just have not made <laughs> I mean, we've made very, very little progress mm. in this area. And so inclusive leadership basically means that you are looking at every aspect of your organization, your company, your institution, you know, whether it's a school or a corporation or a nonprofit organization or a government and saying, what are the structures in place that Im are impacting our ability to recruit and retain? And I put an emphasis on retain, yeah. you know, people of color. And I've been having this discussion, even with the, the local authorities here, that you have to step every time you pass a policy and, and particularly when it comes to hiring, you know, I'm working with an organization that tends to use um, referrals to hire people. And, you know, that's a clear path to we're just going to hire people like us because, you know, you're, you're, you're looking from the same pool of people that you came from, which is you know, most likely going to be very homogenous. And, you know, in order to get past that, you have to break through some of those traditional practices and say, no, we are going to look at a broader range of people. And you know, a lot of times in hiring, people will say, Oh, we don't. We just want the highest quality person. Well, how do you know who the quietest, highest quality person is when you're only dealing, when you got the blinders on, and you're you're only dealing with your own network? So leaders have to say, you know, we're going to look beyond our usual networks. You know, whether it's certain colleges, um, you know, like in France, you know, it's really difficult to break into government unless you went to the right school, the ENA. Um, and, you know, in the UK, obviously, you know, there's a, a hierarchy of colleges yeah. and the same here in the US. I mean, it's it's horrific in things like engineering because there are even the big co corporation. I've talked to people at Facebook and they're like, well, we only look at these top 10 schools. Well, those top 10 schools don't have a lot of people who look like me. Right. I mean, I was very lucky. I did go to Stanford. <laughs> um, but, you know, Stanford is not very representative of the society more broadly. And, um, you know, they've, they've gotten better over the years, but it, it's still a situation where, you know, we have gatekeepers and leaders have to remind themselves that they are gatekeepers and they have to say, OK, we're going to open the doors and we're going to allow people who we may not normally connect with to have an, an opportunity to work in our company. But we're also going to make sure that they feel like they belong 
And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do that. But for one thing, don't just bring in one black person or, or one woman, you know, because then they they become the focal point. <laughs> um, you know, bring in several, yeah. many, um, you know, and then from the bottom up, people in these organizations, you know, they have to demand sometimes that their leader. I've seen many situations where the reason there's change, for example, in higher ed institutions, a lot of times the change happens because the students demand it. Yeah. You know, the creation of, you know, African-American studies programs or, you know, immigration studies programs. A lot of that comes from the demand of students uh, or the demand of, of staff or the demand of faculty. So a lot of times I don't think sometimes people understand that they do have power here, that they can tell their leadership, you have to do this. But that happened this last summer. I saw that all over the place where, you know, in corporate situations, you know, the, the staff would come and say, you understand there was just this uprising, you know, about around George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. What are you doing about it? And seriously, that was one of the, the things that forced a lot of corporations or as a consumer, you know, you can go you know, say, I'm not going to buy your product if you aren't going to be more focused on diversity. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, there's a lot of ways to do this. And that's where empathy becomes radical empathy, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that's, the, yeah. the, that's where. Yep. Yeah. Um, so speaking of leadership, we're recording this in the week before Biden and Harris come into office. What should they be focusing on in order to encourage radical empathy and start bridging these racial divides in the US? Um, basically, by, you know, they've started to model some of the things that I think are going to be important going forward. First of all, you know, being truthful, um, not coming at the situation with um, you know, rancor or, uh, you know, vengeance. Um, and I think, you know, what's going to be really important to kind of bring us all together is just to acknowledge the trauma we've all lived through. Um, you know, in some ways, you know, a lot of people I know are saying we just want normal. And unfortunately, it's not going to be normal for a while, but mm -hmm. Um, they can model the kind of behavior they want to see from the rest of the country. And I think that, you know, Joe Biden is probably one of the best people we could have at this point in time, just because he's, he is, he does seem to have empathy and he, well, because of his lived experience, you know, he lost his wife and, and you know, child when he was a young, you know, when he, right as after he became a Senator and, you know, he lost his son more recently to brain cancer. And, you know, he shows a lot of empathy. And, um, you know, Kamala Harris is also, you know, the kind of person who has this quiet strength. And um, I, I do think that hopefully their example will lead us to focus more on this idea of truth and reconciliation. And I'm, I'm really trying to... Um, you know, be supportive of that in a way that gets us to a point where we can start talking about what happened over the last four years and, and frankly, throughout our history right. uh, around race. So, so much of what happened over the last four years was really driven by racism. And um, so I hope that, you know, Harris and Biden will acknowledge that. I think they already have and really try to focus on a, a 
on those racial divides as well as the economic divides and try to, you know, I mean, the, the, it, it, cause underlying a lot of this is why we have so much inequality. Yeah. Um, and I mean, economic inequality, uh, you know, I mean, the rich have just, especially, you know, even in the last year with the crisis, you know, the rich have just gotten richer and the poor are, are getting poorer. And we really need um, large scale programs that are going to get resources and money to the people on the lowest rungs of the ladder. And, but we also have to acknowledge that structural racism has to also be, um, you know, we have to work on that or we're just going to end up in the same place we were, you know, we have been. And so we have to find new and innovative ways to address the issue of structural racism so that we can move, you know, it's going to take years and years and years for us to completely move past it. You know, hire, yeah. uh, or electing a black president did not change it. Um, you know, it's just so entrenched in the way we do things. And I, I should give a shout out to my next book I'm working on, The Roots of Racism, oh, yeah. which examines yeah. the, the the depth of stru structural racism and the way that we it's kind of been reinforced through our across the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we can't give up. We have to we just have to say today is a day I'm going to work to fight structural racism. Yeah, one day at a time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's true to say that 2021, the start of 2021 hasn't been quite the fresh start that we all hoped for. Um, what are your hopes for your book for this year and for the role Radical Empathy is going to play in it? I really hope that people will take the message to heart. And so I'm doing my best, you know, through social media. I mean, and, you know, meeting with people and, and I'm really open to meeting with any group or, or organization or individuals who want to talk about radical empathy, because I, I really feel like people are touched by my story. And I've found so far, you know, some of the people who you know did the reviews and so on. What has really been important to me is that they are touched by my story. Because I, like I it, was. You know, I was when I read. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and thank you. Um, and so I just feel that, it, you know, the timing couldn't be better for this book because we're all going to, you know, especially after, you know, January 20th when we have a new president and vice president, we're all going to be looking for a way to move on and how to move on. And I really believe that, you know, the, we've been in the middle of a racial reckoning um, for some time now. And that we have to be willing to be vulnerable. That's got to be the thing that's going to get us to that next step. Because people keep asking me, how are we going to get past this? And, you know, I, I, I know it's my mantra, but, you know, seriously, we have to start with ourselves. Yeah. And if I can just get a hand, you, you know, I, I, would, I would hope this book gets out to millions, <laughs> of course. But, you know, I'm happy. I'm going to use my platform, you know, for the rest of my life, basically, to uh, really fight for change, to really see if we can get to a point of truth and reconciliation. So for the next year, that's really what I'm going to be pushing on is, um, especially here in the U.S., is to we have to focus on truth and reconciliation and radical empathy is the path to getting there. Yeah, I hope so. I think so. And I think what's brilliant about your book is that it gives all of us something quite 
pra- it's a concept that's quite practical to hold on to, isn't it? And it's a process yes. to work through. And I think that's going to be really helpful in keeping that radical empathy in play mm-hmm. for a long time, hopefully, mm-hmm. so it can make change. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Terry. Um, yes. More information about Terry's book, Radical Empathy, is available on our website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.